0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we've got a best of for you. It's a first for the TechSnap show. You submitted some of your favorite moments, and we'll review them, and I'll join you from time to time to have a little holiday cheer. All that and a heck of a lot more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 194 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. This is our best of episode, and it's brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. Now, this week, we're doing something special. I want to say thank you to everybody who submitted in some of your favorite best of moments. And we kick it off this year with a bang. We go way back into the archive for one of our favorite war stories, Mr. Alan Jude's first war story on the TechSnap program picture it. It's a hot, Canadian wilderness August day. And Alan's got one job to do. He's got to move data centers. Late on us, sir.
1: Right. So, uh, we're moving from our current data center to a bigger one, uh, and we decide we're going to do this over two consecutive weekends. So, we'll move half of our gear, and then move the other half after. Sure. Right? So, we, we start moving the load over to the one half of our gear, so that we can free up the rest. And we reconfigure our redundant router to act as the primary at the old location, and we'll move the the main router to the new location.
0: Yeah, a nice controlled move. Hopefully, minimize yeah. outages, things like that.
1: Yeah, and it's it's all going very smoothly. Right, we have it all planned out. All the servers have uh, modified running configs that are uh, going to keep them up while we move, and they also have their boot configs are all set up for when they move. They can come back on there right away, already reconfigured. Nice. Right, so we got the IP addresses changed. Everything's going to go perfectly <laughs> uh, and then I'd say it was about an hour before we were scheduled to uh, get to the data center and start tearing things apart uh, the power goes out in a huge swath of the city no yeah probably because it was
0: so hot everybody had their AC on
1: something like that I never did find out exactly what happened but that's not a big problem this is a data center right we have battery backups and generators and it's all it's all going to be fine right right Right. Actually, the power didn't go out where I live. Uh, I live on the other side of a major highway, so it's a separate power grid. But anyway, uh, I didn't know anything was wrong, but the oh, power had gone out, and it's running off batteries. And that's fine, right? The system detects that, all right, yeah. we've been running off batteries for like two minutes now. The utility power doesn't appear to be coming back right away, so spool up the generator.
0: Yeah, you got like a system. You got a generator box that takes care of that.
1: Yeah, and so the generator comes online and starts generating power. Everything's going perfectly. <laughs> uh, and then it's, uh, so the system decides, all right, let's try to switch to the, the uh, generator now. And it tries, but it fails. Uh-oh. It doesn't get any power from the generator. So it continues on the batteries and sends out an alert and tries to keep going. And it tries the generator again. Still no power from the generator. And...
0: Uh, w- do you know why?
1: No. Well, we we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, Okay, It'll ruin the story. All right, I
0: don't want to. Oh yeah, sorry.
1: Anyway, after uh, about twelve or fifteen minutes, the batteries are critical, and still no power from the generator, and so everything goes out. Oh my gosh! So up to this point, I didn't know anything was going on. I'm just at home getting ready for this big move. Right, I'm packing up toolboxes and getting all ready. Right, and then all of a sudden, my internet at home goes out because my Internet comes from the same place that the data center is, right? (laughs) Oh,
0: no. So So you're like, oh, boy. my
1: home Internet's out. I don't know what's going on.
0: Your mind starts racing.
1: I'm like, all right, my Internet's not working. Okay, call up the ISP. Why is my Internet not working? It's like, we've had a power failure. I'm like, okay. Uh, And then my phone starts buzzing while I'm on the phone. I'm like, what's going on? Oh, my servers are down. I'm like, hey, why is the data center down, too? This is ridiculous. It's a data center. It's
0: a data center.
1: Right? And they're like, we don't know. We're looking into it. I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> so the problem with this is uh, it takes them about half hour more to get the power back online, and, but they do. The problem is all of my routers and servers were all configured to, after the next reboot, switch over to the new configuration. Oh, no. Yes. So they all have the wrong IP addresses and uh, particularly... The, uh, what do you call it? Directory services that we use. Yeah, like LDAP uh, so or something. Some, yeah, we have a, we use something like that, and a bunch of the servers uh, that were configured for the new data center, or the ones that were configured to stay, couldn't find the LDAP directory. So they couldn't find a bunch of the users required for some of the services.
0: Oh, so the services couldn't start because they couldn't authenticate. Right.
1: And, well, more than that, it caused a giant delay while it was trying to look it up. Uh, right? It causing it to take like two minutes to give up trying to map this username to a user ID. Massive so delays. while trying to reconfigure everything, everything's taking epic amounts of time to, to do it.
0: Oh, no, dude.
1: Yeah, so it took a while to get everything back online. And then we still had to pull all our gear out, do some hardware upgrades on it, and... Move it all to the new data center. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a crazy. Did it take uh, you a
0: bit to realize that the uh, routers had, had configured over it for the other IP sp- uh, space? And no, stuff like I that? I
1: knew right away because I configured them to do that. I'm oh like, yeah, yeah. The power wasn't supposed to go out. It's a data center, right? What the
0: hell? <laughs> it's funny, you know. Uh, data center power outages tend to be a common little issue. Uh, just little blips here and there sometimes can happen, and
1: uh, you know, well, uh, Rackspace rack space had a big problem with that. It was uh, one of the first times they had such a big problem. Hmm. I think in the end, they had to give out uh, millions of dollars in refunds. Whoa, really? Yep. Because uh, it took out, like, everything. Uh, it was Some problem with their UPS, their battery backup system. Which so, uh, is the part that's supposed to keep the power on. When it failed, it failed to get yeah. to the generator power. <laughs> and then it, they had a second event, like, two days later while trying to fix it.
0: Oh, man.
1: Uh, Kick them while I'll, you're down. I'll, I'll throw a link for that in there, but uh, it was one of the first stories I did at AppFail. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, there you and go. And we talked a bit about how uh, Google's, in their setup, they put a separate battery in each computer mm-hmm. so that they don't have that single point of failure.
0: Was that episode one of TechSnap where we talked about that?
1: Um, I, I think, think it was so. two, two when we talked okay. about the uh, Facebook data center design.
0: So you have your outage. Did you uh, Were you able to get on the road to recovery pretty quick, or what was the situation? Well,
1: yeah. It just uh, basically delayed our move by about two hours, while well, we had to scramble around and fix everything uh, so we could move.
0: So why didn't the uh, backup power work properly?
1: Right. So it took them about a week uh, to finally deliver the root cause analysis, but it turns out uh, that when the the local ISP had got bought out by a Big National about a year before, <laughs> and they decided they, they weren't interested in doing data center anymore, and that's why we were moving. They had chopped down all the good transit and replaced it with cheap transit and were kicking us out, basically. Um, uh, but also, they weren't keeping up the routine maintenance on the generators.
0: Well, because they were done with it. they were.
1: Yeah, they weren't interested in, anymore. Uh, it turns out that the power transfer cable that goes from the generators to the battery backup banks had corroded and needed to be replaced.
0: Oh, that's some serious neglect.
1: Right. And so, right, uh, the power couldn't get from the generator to the UPS battery banks, and so it couldn't be delivered to the servers.
0: What a, it, what a stupid, stupid well-able-to-plan-for you know, well thing to bring down your whole data center.
1: Yeah. And the other problem was, because they were closing off the data center, they had already scaled back the staff. So they were understaffed to deal with a catastrophic power failure like this. Right, so I took them, and they were more, honestly, they were more concerned getting all their cable customers back online than the data center.
0: Right. Yeah. And so, so as with any good uh, war story on, did you have some lessons learned from this? Like, yeah. I know there's not a lot since it wasn't directly under your control, but you can always take away something, I figure.
1: But part of it was that uh, don't change your boot configs early. <laughs> yeah. The The whole point of having a running config and a boot config is that use the running config to test the change and make sure it works and in case it doesn't, you can just reboot and it goes back to how it was before. Yep. This is extremely important if the hardware is remote. Yes. Right? Because if you make a change that makes it unaccessible, you can't you know, you don't have physical access to fix it, right? You have to right. get someone to go do it. And you could be lucky that if all you have to do is get a power cycle, it's a lot easier than trying to get someone to log into a terminal with a password they're not supposed to have or something and mm-hmm. And reconfigure it.
0: Like I said, we went way back in the archive to find that one. And for me, it's both fun and painful to see the old production values that we had in the old show. I'm uh, pretty happy with where we're at now. I'll tell you about something else I'm pretty happy with. That's our first sponsor, DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com, won't you? And bring this promo code of power with you, my friends. Snap December. I'll tell you why in just a moment. But DigitalOcean, it's where you got to go. It's who I go to for my back-end infrastructure all the time now. It's a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. And that really pays off because it means I can get going right away. In fact, you're going to get started in less... A minute, probably about 55 seconds or so. And pricing plans they start only five dollars a month. Well, remember, I told you about our promo code of power snap December. Well, that promo code of power will get you a ten dollar credit. Five dollars for a rig means two months, no money out of your pocket. It's going to get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte a freaking terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam. And London, I have da- I have droplets in San Francisco and New York, and I'm thinking about adding a droplet to London, just so that way I can uh, I can be like, yeah, man, I got geodiversity. But really, it's mostly because for one of the things I'm using my DigitalOcean droplets for is to synchronize files with some filter supporters, and if it's regionally closer, that means higher transfer rates for them. One of my favorite things about DigitalOcean is how solid their interface is. It's truly. The trendsetter. Nobody beats DigitalOcean. Their interface is simple and intuitive, yet extremely powerful you can take snapshots do dns management you can redeploy rigs you get html access to the console it's really really slick go over there just to try it out if nothing else over DigitalOcean.com. remember we've got that promo code of power snap december when you check out and you know i talk about their straightforward api how it lets you replicate a lot of the functionality on a much larger scale you can also just take advantage of some of the things the community has already created like this digital ocean puppet Module. It's a Puppet module which provides a type and provider to allow managing droplets with Puppet. I've mentioned this before in the past, but I want you to kind of think about the value of DigitalOcean combined with the ability to snap it into your existing management infrastructure. Wow, that's powerful. Offsite uses, offsite backup, emergency scaling, and DigitalOcean even has hourly pricing. Go over to DigitalOcean.com right now. Use our promo code SnapDecember get the ten dollar credit, and also check out some of their tutorials. I know you TechSnap listeners out there are experts. You might be able to write something up for DigitalOcean and get paid money. Money. In fact, DigitalOcean is willing to pay up to two hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, for a tutorial. Uh, They have editing staff that will work with you. Uh, All right. Uh, Next up is uh, a story that honestly surprised me at its scale. It seems to be one of your favorites, too. Can traffic lights be hacked? Alan, should we start with our first story this week, which honestly almost sounds like it's something bad guys would use in a Hollywood plot to make a bank robbery escape or something, doesn't it, Alan? And and what's ridiculous is how easy it actually turns out to
1: be. (laughs) Well, it's, it's like we've seen it in movies countless times. Yeah. You know, the bad guy has a little box and he presses the button and all the lights turn green for him and he can right. cause... Or, uh, you know, in
0: 24, Jack Bauer's trying to get somewhere fast, so Chloe hacks the uh, the network and turns all the lights green or turns all the lights
1: red to stop the bad guy. And you're always like, oh, sure. Yeah. Turns out... Yeah, and, and, you know, also you see things like, you know, just the computer hacker sitting in his basement and causing car crashes right. by making the lights go green in both directions. That stuff. could never really happen, right, Alan? Well... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, some researchers from... Uh, actually, I missed which university they were from, I think, uh, but found a startling lack of security in the traffic management system. Uh, so they started investigating the systems that control the traffic lights at intersections in some unnamed city in Michigan.
0: Yeah, it was the University of Michigan, too.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, so they found that the system uh, uses IP traffic uh, transmitted over two different wireless protocols uh, for the different stoplights to basically create a tree network, right? So, you know, the controller's here and then it kind of spreads out from there, wirelessly, so that they can reach further and further away. Right, kind of like uh, the smart uh, power meters do here. Right, uh, not everyone's connected back to the central office, but you know, you jump to your neighbor, to neighbor, neighbor, jump along wirelessly until you get to somebody that does have a connection back to the head end, uh, rather than having uh, to hardwire, you know, Ethernet or whatever or copper to every single traffic light. But they found that uh, the two protocols, there's one that's a 5.8 gigahertz line of sight. So that one, the two traffic lights have to be able to see each other to get a good signal. Uh, The advantage to that one is it's faster, right? Uh, higher ba- uh, higher frequency gives you more information per second. Right. But uh, higher frequencies don't go through things as well. Right. And there's probably, you know, more gear out there these days that work on those frequencies too, I would think, right? Right. And then they have the their other, their fallback protocol is a 900 megahertz protocol that um, 900 megahertz goes through buildings and walls a lot better. Sure. So that works when, the uh, you know, there's buildings or stuff between this, these uh, traffic signals so they can't see each other. Uh But all the information is sent over wireless links and it's completely unencrypted and has no authentication. (laughs) What could go wrong? Uh, Now, both of the wireless things are using non-standard protocols, so proprietary protocols. But uh, specifically, the 5.8 gigahertz one, that's the same frequency range that 802.11n uses. And it's actually, turns out the protocol is very similar to (laughs) 802.11n, just, you know, customized so that you're 802.11n device won't be able to connect. Right, so maybe the even network.
0: the same type of hardware, just different protocols.
1: Right, well, such that it's entirely likely that somebody with a laptop or a smartphone and some software would be able to connect to that network if they knew what to do. So, and again, this is the network that all the cameras are being controlled with. like Not just lights. the cameras, but the actual lights. Yeah. As well, yeah. So uh, when you take over the system, you get control of the lights and the cameras. Ooh. Uh, so is it, while it would be possible to reverse engineer the custom wireless protocol... The same times the uh, university researchers managed to just get a hold of one of the radios that actually speaks the protocol, and then hook that up to their yeah, computer. Okay. Uh, now you know some people are like, "Hey, that might be." It's like cheating. It's like, well, we've proven before that it's not that hard to get those. You know, just using some social engineering, right? If you just call up the company that sells them and be like, "Yeah, we're from the city. We need a, one of our radios broke down. Could we get an extra one of those radios?" If you're willing to pay for it, they're not really that concerned about selling it to you, right? Right. So it's not impossible for an attacker to get one of these, although it's entirely possible somebody could reverse engineer the wireless protocol and not need it anymore. Uh, so once they were on this this network, uh, by attaching that radio to their computer and you know associating with it, because it works very much like regular wireless, uh, once you have the special radio, uh, they found that the management system is running VXWorks, which is a, a real-time operating system. So that's different than a regular operating system in that it's all about scheduling, making sure that stuff can happen within a very, very short amount of time. Um, and uh, they found it's VXWorks five point five, uh, which is like a version from the late nineties. It's rather dated now. You know, they're up to VXWorks eleven. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's it was very popular in embedded devices in the nineties. Uh, so VXWorks is usually built from source so that it can be customized. Right? You, it, it's not. It's a proprietary OS, but you buy it in order to build a product around it. So you get the source code when you buy it and you compile it yourself and have right. it's, your it's, own custom it's, it's stuff. It's
0: not like something consumers are ever
1: picking up. Right. But it, it's, it's not a proprietary OS, kind of like Windows, where you, know, you buy it and then you build your product on top of it. right? VXWorks is you buy the OS, you license the OS, and then you build your product into it. That's interesting. Um, so it includes a bunch of debugging options that are enabled by default. Or in the, anyway, in this case, they weren't turned off. So uh, VXWorks is running with a a TCP port open, and when you connect to it, you can issue commands to read and write random memory locations, kill any task on the machine you want, or restart it, or whatever. Okay, wow. You have like basically complete access via this debugging port without any authentication. Yeah, this wasn't meant to be left on in production. Although I'm sure it facilitates debugging by the uh, vendor when there is a problem in yeah, production. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and and yeah. maybe it was built. Well, in it's a time supposed
1: m- to be the secure network, right? right? Exactly. Like, nobody else is going to be on our proprietary wireless network. Exactly. It's all super safe because we changed a couple of bits in the 802.11 protocol. Right. And and, no and maybe back when that, that
0: system was built too, some of that equipment was much more. Um, right. Uh, not as widely spread. Well, I'm not saying the right way, but it wasn't as you know it was it was equipment that wasn't as readily available to everybody too. Mm-hmm. So that was almost security
1: through obscurity in a sense. Yeah. But uh, by using that debugging feature and by just capturing the wireless traffic once they were able to associate with the network, uh, the researchers were able to reverse engineer the protocol that the controller uses to send commands to the traffic lights and the cameras. Uh, it turns out each command is basically the same, right? So there's like a common starter part and then just like the last bit or two of the command that's different that tells the camera to do different things. Okay. Or the, the stoplight to do different things. And so once they had got one or two of those and they understood the how it works, they could just start flipping the bits, you know, keep changing that bit to different things until they uh, found every possible command and looked at, you know, <laughs> you stand there by this traffic light. And, well, if we send 001, it turns green. If we send 0010, it turns yellow. Right. And 100 turns red. Yeah. But if we have 101, this happens. And, you know, every possible combination until you figured out what every different command does. Uh, but the important things are that there's no encryption so that once somebody gets on the network, they can see everything that's being sent back and forth. Uh, there's also no authentication. So that means that the devices will accept a command from anyone, not just the controller, <laughs> right? So there's no, like, the commands aren't signed such that the, uh, the traffic like makes sure the command was actually from the VXworks box and not from my laptop before it accepts it. Also, they found that uh, even if they were did have some kind of system like that, uh, this it's vulnerable to replay attacks. So if you capture the traffic of the VXWorks machine telling that traffic light to turn red, if you record that, you can just play it back later and the traffic light will turn red again. Mm-hmm. So even if there was some kind of system, that, or if you weren't able to reverse engineer the protocol or something in some way to make it so that you couldn't Write packets yourselves. You could just capture the commands you want and then replay them on the network later.
0: Right, that would almost be easier.
1: Yeah, and there's no firewalls, so once you're on the network, you can talk to every device. <laughs> of course. <laughs> now it's wireless, and so once you're on the LAN, it kind of makes sense. But it, it definitely seems like this would be an ideal place to deploy some like uh, SSL or IPSec or something, so that and some authentication and uh, right authorization, so that. You know they'll only accept real commands from the uh, the controller. No kidding. Like it, you don't even have to go really that complicated. It's like at the bottom of the command, you include a hash of the command and the you, you, you know you do doing the HMAC signature or whatever, like you do in regular API calls you do on the internet mm-hmm. and stuff. It's, it didn't have to be that complicated to to make it fairly safe. Hmm. Uh, also, they found that. Uh, an attacker can trip the fail-safe mode, where basically the traffic lights go into just blinking red in yeah. every direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And to get back out of that mode, a technician has to physically go and reset the light like, by going to the location of that traffic light.
0: That's going to cause and so inconvenience. In ta-
1: right. And so the attacker could do a, a kind of denial-of-service attack by tripping a bunch of those. Or by tripping them faster than they could be repaired. Right. So you could just like trip the one over here, and once they go over there and repair it, do one on the other side of town, and then back on the first side of town, and just blink, 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 make the lights go crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the biggest problem is that the uh, the 5.8 gigahertz network uh, is so similar to the regular uh, 802.11n. Right. And every laptop or mobile device has that kind of radio capable of communicating on that band built into it. That's Such crazy. that you know, if somebody reverse engineers the protocol and, and writes a driver for it or whatever, then they could probably access this network from their laptop without any special hardware.
0: I and mean, I'm sure there's no logging or auditing either of access and exactly, things like that. It's,
1: it's a private network. Right. going to be on. No one else is going to get on here. So somebody
0: that has equipment in their laptop and they find a system that's using this 5.8 gigahertz spectrum, if they could make the protocol changes, whatever they have to make to their laptop to communicate to this, not only would they get access to this network, but
1: then there would be no log that they were ever there. Yeah, and yeah. On top of just being able to turn lights and stuff, they could get the camera feeds and the live stream, so they could use it to like record and watch all the cameras and see what's happening, or maybe disable the cameras
0: depending on. Yep. I like, go go back to that bad way. Exactly. Get, bad guy getaway. Yep.
1: Exactly. Uh so both the eight the five point eight gigahertz network, uh, because it's almost eight hundred two eleven, n it actually supports WPA two, <laughs> and the nine hundred megahertz network is older but supports uh, Web. Or the original WPA. Okay. Uh, so both the network support encryption is just not used. The traffic management system itself supports, yeah, uh, you know, username and password authentication, but the default credentials are used on everything. No one ever actually set up <laughs> usernames and passwords. Oh. And that, so, so there's a couple of possible things that could be done to make the so very easy things that could be done to make this less of a problem. They're just not being done. Uh, so the paper. Uh, I have linked the PDF in here called Green Lights Forever, Analyzing the Security of Traffic Infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, was presented at uh, Usenix Woot, which is the Workshop on Offensive Technologies.
0: <laughs> Woot 14, Alan. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, the researchers August. pointed out the most alarming quote they got from the vendor. So they called oh, up yeah. the company that makes this system or, yeah. or that sells it to the city yeah. and asked them about it. And the vendor said, quote, uh, we have followed the accepted industry standard, and it is that standard which does not include any security.
0: Yep. In other words, we followed the CYA protocol, and uh, we're not responsible for that. Well, it's more that
1: we did what everybody else does, yeah. and nobody else does security, so we didn't bother.
0: Right. Well, the the industry standard doesn't say I have to, so I'm not going to. Uh, it's not my problem. It's their problem to figure that part out. Yep. Yeah. Uh, good good, and fascinating de- details
1: we actually got on this study, which yes. is really uh, cool. The, the PDF has a bunch of cool pictures and shows what the network actually looks like and diagrams. And yeah, and you also – There's some pictures of the actual hardware as well.
0: I mean, you got you got the frequency that the networks run on. You get the version of the management software. I mean, we don't normally get that media of technical details. well right, because
1: these guys were uh, researchers. They were actually working with the, the city and were you know, allowed access to do this, right? They weren't gotcha. doing it as rogue people. Right, yeah, yeah. And But they, they did get access to actually use this on the live network, not just in, like, a lab. Right, inside. They
0: actually, that's the other thing I think that's probably worth mentioning is they, they coordinated with traffic safety and local traffic safety and then did it. Like, they actually went out. It's not all theory. They actually went out and did this, uh, which is more spooky. And I think it's really good they're le- releasing this information, so maybe other areas could see this too. So anyways, Alan, any other thoughts on uh, that story before we run?
1: Uh, No, but uh, you should definitely check out the PDF because it's uh, even more interesting. Yes, and we'll have that Uh, link because They talk about uh, firmware updates and changing default credentials and uh, all the different, you know, broader lessons that they could have learned and related stuff going on in the field and what's left for them to keep working on to find out more about this and lots of interesting stuff. (laughs)
0: That story sounds like it could be the center idea behind an awesome movie plot, and it makes my head spin with possibilities. And you know what else makes my head spin? The freaking savings I get from Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Why does it make my head spin? Spin, spin, because I only pay for what I use. Ting just takes my minutes, my messages, and my megabytes, and they add them up. Whatever bucket I fall into, that's what I pay. It's Six dollars for the line, and that's it. No more crazy contracts. No more, oh, I might need 5 gigabytes, so I better pay $40 a month for 5 gigabytes. No more of that scam. Ting is on a mission to make mobile make sense. And I think they're doing it. And you can get started by going to techsnap.ting.com. It'll take $25 off your first device. If you have a Ting-compatible device, they have a BYOD page, then they're going to give you a $25 credit. But better than that, too, they also have an early termination relief program. So you can get out of that contract. They're upping the goods, too. Uh, you could really make out on this. And if you combine uh, our special discount with the ETF relief program, you could really, really start saving some money. They're going to give you up to $150 per contract you have to get canceled. Then you move into Ting and you got no more ETFs and so no more contracts anyways. You want to use hotspot hot or tethering? Hotspottering. I like that. You just turn it on and you have access to it. You got it. Uh, And Ting's going GSM, too, so they're going to have CDMA and GSM. So you're going to have all of the great aspects of Ting, like their excellent no-hold customer service, their super awesome dashboard that I love. They also have an Android and iOS app. Plus, your dollar's going towards a company I think you're going to be pretty comfortable voting with your wallet for. Uh, ting has a great post-up on organic net neutrality, and I haven't had a chance yet to point it out for our TechSnap audience. I think it's something that would probably be relevant to your interest. So get started by going to techsnap.ting.com, try out their savings calculator, get a look at their dashboard, maybe even call them at one eight five five ting ftw I know it's almost impossible to wrap your brain around, but now I'm entering my two years with Ting, and I got to tell you... I fundamentally and passionately believe that we as consumers have to make this switch in order to force this very obstinate industry into better practices. And you can personally be involved with that by going to techsnap.ting.com. Check them out. Start saving money right now. Get Take advantage of that ETF program while they have it. And then you can utilize GSM when they roll it out in February. techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right. TechSnap.ting.com. I tell you what, I, I my Nexus 5 is, I, I still still think it's one of the best devices. They've got a lot of other great devices, too. Uh, so there you go. Now, one of the stories that was uh, huge this year was the whole TrueCrypt disaster. It has us still kind of searching, uh, and we're, it's a story that's so big, we're still covering it in some regards, even some of the most recent episodes, but this next clip is really where we dove into the True Crypt disaster for the first time. Alan, huge show this week. Huge show yesterday, as I was getting Unfilter sort of prepared, uh, the whole internet blew up about TrueCrypt. Like, TrueCrypt is like, I mean, in the last 24 hours, I feel like my whole world has gone upside down, because I don't know, maybe I was mistakenly one of those people that was like a TrueCrypt believer.
1: Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, so, I guess to start, uh, TrueCrypt, uh, their website announced that the project is being shut down, and that you should stop using it. Yeah. Uh, And for people that don't know, TrueCrypt is like a cross- platform encryption system that can do both like images, like just here's an encrypted file that lives on my hard drive full of encrypted files, like a volume, uh, or whole disk encryption. So you encrypt your operating system disk or even you know a USB stick or whatever. Uh, one of the advantages was um, it was available for Windows, Mac, Linux, BSD, et cetera. So it meant that you know, if you encrypted a USB stick on Windows and took it to another machine, like a Linux machine, you could still plug it in and access the files. Uh, right where most you know most operating systems now have some type of encryption system, but none of them are compatible between each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so the website for TrueCrypt was changed yesterday to state that TrueCrypt may contain unfixed security issues, and you should stop using it. Not just uh,
0: changed, but redirected to uh, a SourceForge
1: oh, the, page. Right. They shut down their hosting yeah. and, and moved the domain to SourceForge, which they already had a page at SourceForge. They just updated it and did the redirect right. instead. Um, uh, the... Page also states that now that Windows XP is end of life, this is kind of why they're doing it. Uh, all supported versions of Windows, which is you know Vista and up, uh, now come with BitLocker, and so there's no reason for so people that still depend on TrueCrypt. Whereas when XP was still alive, you know that was TrueCrypt was basically your only option on Windows XP. Uh, the website also provides information and set of screenshots and showing you how to uh, convert your data, how to you know take your stuff off TrueCrypt and put it onto BitLocker. Um, and it also released the new version seven point two of TrueCrypt, which only allows users to decrypt their files, not encrypt any new files. Uh, so you can only use it to get your data out of your TrueCrypt volume, not uh, to. You can't keep using TrueCrypt with the new version. Uh, originally, people obviously thought this was a hack of the website, uh, partly just because of how bare bones the website is. It was, you know, put together very quickly, uh, and you know they figured they just the website got compromised and somebody wrote this up or whatever. And so they were very suspect uh, suspect of the new version of the software on the website. Right? It's like don't download that; it's probably a trojan or something, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, however, once people started looking into it, uh, the the new 7.2 binary is signed with the same private key that 7.1 and so on was signed with. Oh, I thought it was signed uh, so with
0: the key that was generated after 7.1.
1: No. Uh, it's the same key they've been using okay. for at least the last two years. Oh, ah, okay. Uh, there was something with a key on SourceForge. Something happened, and, and uh, but it got reverted, so okay. I don't know. Okay. Uh But, yeah, so the new binary is signed with the same key as the old ones, suggesting that it was published by the same people. Uh, Also, a bunch of other little, you know, uh, inconspicuous bits uh, are the same, like the path it was compiled from and a bunch of little metadata like that. That just suggests it was done the same way as all the previous ones, not done by somebody else.
0: Also, um, in terms of the website, I believe staff at SourceForge said, we don't detect any unusual activity. Nobody's contacted us for support to take control of the page. Right. right. Yeah, there was no
1: unusual login activity. You know, it's not like they there was a password reset done or something. Uh, part of the the hubbub came around the fact that uh, SourceForge recently changed the way they store passwords uh, from whatever they were doing, I think, to bcrypt or uh, SHA five twelve crypt, uh, which they should have been using the whole time. But anyway, uh, and so they were asking people to change their passwords to update in the database so they would be on the new scheme, uh, and people kind of. You know, with that, seeing that happen everywhere else, they kind of assumed that meant SourceForge was compromised. Uh, but SourceForge says no, they were just, you know, switching their algorithm because they don't want to be uh, the next Adobe with doing their <laughs> password hashing wrong.
0: <laughs> Good point. Uh, yeah.
1: Uh, and so, yeah, they say that there's nothing suspicious about the login and the upload and the changes to the page and stuff. Um, one of the other, some of the, there's a couple of things that kind of complicate matters for TrueCrypt. One of them is that the developers of TrueCrypt are anonymous. Uh, They, for some reasons, don't actually, we don't know who they are. Uh, So it's also hard to be able to confirm with, you know, who the developer is uh, when we don't know who that is to tell, you know, are you the one that did this or is it somebody else? Uh,
0: Right. I mean, I think that's because of the type of software they've been making. That seems understandable.
1: It's understandable, but it complicates matters as far as telling who's, you know, if this is an authoritative change or whatever. Yeah.
0: Well, I, uh, I mean, one conjecture has been, perhaps this is an elaborate way to smoke out some of the developers in a sense to get them to come out and verify themselves like with their public key or something like that.
1: I don't know. It's possible, but they could probably do that while remaining anonymous. And secondly, it's like, how did somebody get access to do this? Yeah. Including the private key to sign the binary, you know, taking over the sourceforge page would have been one thing. Uh, but all the other things put together seems suspicious. Um, uh, one of the other complications is that while the code for TrueCrypt is available, you can look at it, uh, the license isn't completely open source. It's got a bunch of restrictions and stuff. Uh, so it may not be possible for people to actually continue the uh, the TrueCrypt project. Hmm. Even if the open source community wanted to pick it up because of the license. Uh, so there's a, a gist on GitHub that's kind of been tracking everything they can find and also just making their own speculation. And they basically came up with uh, three possible explanations for this mess. Yeah. I like these though. Uh the first one was that the website was hacked and somehow they also compromised the keys to sign the new binary, although that doesn't really look like that's what happened. Uh some of the weird things are it's like, why would they suggest changing to BitLocker? (laughs) And if you compromise the TrueCrypt website and had the private key to sign a new binary would you make a version of truecrypt that's read only or would you make a version of truecrypt that like stole the files or something right or or you know pull a what was that malware that encrypted people's files and de- extorted oh. money out of them
0: oh yeah 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 oh boy uh, it's a funny how huh?
1: yeah bit something right yeah um, well if you did that you could just you know have the next version of truecrypt as soon as you mount the volume it changes the password on you and be like, give me bitcoins if you want your files okay,
0: so first, I mean, if you're going to bring up the question now, I want to ask you a little bit further on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why would you recommend BitLocker? uh, If you are supposedly so paranoid about your privacy that you've kept yourself so anonymous, then you would probably not, A, recommend a closed proprietary solution because a lot of people who are in this space liked 2Crypt because it was open source. So that's one thing. So why would you recommend a proprietary solution? And number two, or B, whatever I was at, Microsoft is known to work with the NSA, so like, why are they recommending a company that has been known to work right, with the NSA? And that's Whatever why it that kind means,
1: of tends towards more my explanation. And then
0: the other thing is that the Mac. Like, I'm not sure I haven't checked, but I, I read that the Mac OS 10 instructions for it, creating an, an encrypted volume were just to make a folder and called encrypted, or make a new virtual disk and just name it encrypted.
1: Like it was <laughs> a total joke. Be, they yeah. weren't even real recommendations. Uh, um, I didn't look at the OSX one because I wouldn't know what it looks like. And then
0: the other thing, like if you're going to throw in the flag, open
1: utilities, go to Disk Utilities, create a new image. Where is it? yeah, you're uh, looking at it right now on the site. Size of data encrypted by TrueCrypt. and Select. <laughs> no, you select encryption from the drop down. Oh, okay,
0: all right. See, that was what I, I was reading. So it's a new so volume, and, and you yeah. format it with encryption. Um, I, I this this whole thing sounds, and and then like no mention of Linux,
1: even though the TrueCrypt has been available for no, other operating. Uh, if you have files encrypted on Linux, switch to dm-crypt or one okay. of those other
0: things. All right. See, uh, that's I didn't There's read that any far. Down. Integrated
1: support for encryption. Search available installation packages for words encryption or crypt and install one of those packages. And switch so to essentially,
0: that. what they're doing then is they're just recommending. So what they're what doing you is you
1: should switch to because they're not going to keep. Well, they're not even
0: script. just to do, not even so much that they're just recommending whatever the operating system's built-in encryption is, regardless yes. of the merits of it. Yeah. That's what they're doing. It just yes. seems really weird, doesn't it? Yep. Uh,
1: well. It depends on which of the four possible explanations that we've thought of they came up with, okay. or that actually explains it. So number two was something bad happened to the TrueCrypt developers, such as, like, you know, take down, or they were killed or something, or TrueCrypt itself was fun to have some, like, super critical vulnerability that wouldn't be fixed or something like that. Uh, they were this, in the middle of this, an audit. Uh, part of it is, you know, that... Signed with the valid signatures and stuff suggests that it was the real author and that he was either doing this because he wanted to or because he was being forced to. Uh, Also, there was apparently subtle changes to the licensing text, Yes, uh, which makes sense if you're going to abandon the project. Although, if you wanted it to continue as open source, uh, the license should have been changed more more to to allow it to be continued. That's another thing that's fishy a little bit. Well, the biggest one that's fishy here is that TrueCrypt was strictly against using the TPM the trusted platform module on the computer to store the keys because there was a suspicion that the NSA uh would have you know that the there would be extra keychains on that TPM that this would allow is why the I NSA think it's weird they're
0: recommending this is why it's odd they're recommending yeah. BitLocker.
1: Yeah. Uh well part of it also is that um you can't use the full disk OS encryption in TrueCrypt if you have EUFI in secure boot. Right? Because it's not signed. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's kind of suggesting that with TrueCrypt's been overtaken by events, right? Uh, Now the XP is dead and and every OS has built-in full disk encryption and those work better than TrueCrypt. Maybe you should just switch to them or whatever. And, you know, if you're doing full disk encryption, it's probably to protect yourself against your laptop being stolen, not against the NSA because if it's the NSA, does it really matter which disk encryption you used? (laughs) You know, if they're in your firmware, then there's nothing you can do, right? Or, you know, We always have the rubber hose cryptography, right? That will just, you know, beat you until you tell them the password. And that's why you should use FreeBSD's GDBE encryption. (laughs) Have I told you about that one? No. Well, so there's right Gelly, which is the one Mm. that, you know, that's like every other disk. And there's a GDBE, which is what they call embassy grade encryption. Uh, So it basically has a kill switch where you can put in the right password and destroy the key and make the disk unreadable forever. Nice. You destroy the key. Uh, so that then when, you're capt- when your embassy is captured by the bad guys and they have you hostage and they say, give me the password, you can give them the right password. And when they try it, they'll say, that is the right password instead of that is the wrong password. Right. It's a, but sorry, the key is destroyed. You can't have the data. Toast the files. So the, the only goal there is to... Try to save your life by you actually gave them the password, but sorry, the data's gone. Mm-hmm. You can't have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to just saying, you know, if you, uh, you know, the wrong password still shows up wrong. The right password looks right. It just can't decrypt it. I you like that. Keys. Yes. yes, it's uh, probably doesn't apply to most people, but uh, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know, Alan. I mean, just I, to- so so this one brought up uh, the idea of that. The TrueCrypt developer was being forced to do uh, this or being forced to do something, uh, is that this was some sort of uh, warrant canary. If you remember, we talked about this a while ago yes. where uh, a project would write on his website that, you know, we've not been coerced to do anything by the NSA. And then if that ever disappeared, you would know that they had then been forced to do something by the NSA, but were under a gag order where they couldn't say that they were being forced to do it by the NSA. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and again this one is like it doesn't it says true crypt may be unsafe because there might be unpatched holes in it right uh and that I've, kind of suggests that i've heard a lot
0: of folks in the jupiter broadcasting community uh theorizing warren canary um i wanted to back <clears throat> up though you mentioned it sounds like kind of like well i you know i'll let you i'll I'll, I'll save it to the end i i have i have a couple more questions for you but i'll let you continue Because we can discuss it at the end of of the roundup here.
1: Uh, But what it more likely seems like is that the author is just not interested in doing it anymore. (laughs) Right? Uh, Like, when you look at the history of TrueCrypt, the last time the major version came out, 7, when they started the 7 branch, was over three years ago now. And the last release of a version of uh, TrueCrypt, 7.1a, was more than a year ago. It doesn't really seem like it's being actively maintained at all, does it? And with the license allowing open source not to continue with it, it's, you know, kind of dead in the water. Like, And that message makes sense now, right? There may be unpatched vulnerabilities in this because the author hasn't looked at it in over a year and doesn't intend to. So do you think the audit that's going underway may be
0: pressed well, this that issue was the for, speculation, for the—
1: That the that uh, the audit was underway, had found something, and so he was telling people to stop using it before the audit came out? Or maybe he was uh,
0: just stressed they would, and, you know, he's just like, I'm done with it.
1: You know, Possibly. just knowing but, somebody's looking
0: over my shoulder right now.
1: Uh, the first half of the audit, or the first section of the audit has been finished and didn't find any backdoors. But it wasn't actually looking at the cryptography, only at, like, the general structure of the program to see if there are any obvious mistakes or obvious backdoors. Uh, whereas if there's something hidden in the actual crypto, that required, you know, a different analyst to actually look at, right? Because it's a different skill set. Uh, so that's another theory. But we'll find out eventually about that one because hey. the... uh the open crypto uh, audit project is right. is auditing it and they'll yeah, let continues us know. On. But, Wait, why so clunky?
0: Why uh, why say well, things if, like if development ended five fourteen? And why, right. why 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 so inaccurate and, and really pinning it on Windows XP? I mean I, I grok what you're saying you it's can't that, do it, full
1: disk encryption with right. it beyond it's, it's XP, like, but that sounds like a minor when, thing. Now that Windows XP is dead, there's no reason to use TrueCrypt. that's, that's the author's Speculation, but that or, seems or inc-
0: that seems like an inconceivable conclusion. I mean, that seems that seems unbelievable because it's like like you OS said in the setup. But but like you yep. said in the setup, TrueCrypt is the one true encryption system we could trust on to move between operating systems. I could encrypt on a Linux box and give it to you, and you could decrypt it on a Windows box or vice versa, and that makes TrueCrypt almost indispensable right there. And TrueCrypt has has some really nice features, like the plausible deniability features and things like that. Right. And it seems like the I mean, personally for me, the last thing I need from TrueCrypt is full disk encryption. That's like the in all of the things TrueCrypt does, that's the last thing on the list for me. And why, and so because XP is gone, you can't do full disk encryption anymore seems like a ludicrous conclusion and for somebody who's theoretically spent more than a decade working on something that's open source, to then not enable that project to continue on and, and you know, to to make the, the, the small changes needed to the open source license so that way the rest of the community could pick it up well, after know, all your years of work?
1: the license is hard. It depends on how much of the license you actually own to be able to change it. And, you hmm. know, if he's done with it then he doesn't want to spend any effort on it right well so Hence, how do we really know it's one website. person because i've read i've read it's multiple people right well nobody
0: knows and that makes this that much more difficult and i well i mean I, I could see a scenario where it's maybe a partnership and there's a bit or or or, or a group of people and there's a bit of a split right yeah going that was one on of the right other
1: now. option was that there was a, basically a power struggle or something yeah. inside the project because you you would have, have key why. access you would have mm. logins Right. Uh, why the uh, website would redirect to SourceForge? Maybe the guy had access to SourceForge, but not enough to overwrite stuff on the old web server or something. But you know, it depends. Uh, it, generally, it comes down to if if there were other people on the project, you think they might have said something by now. Well, I mean, it's only sit- been a day. They're
0: sitting back and going, "Crap! Do I want
1: to out myself?" Right, but you could do it if they've managed to stay anonymous so far. I'm sure they could stay anonymous while still saying something, right?
0: The only thing that could make this story more interesting if if Bitcoin was somehow involved, like a Bitcoin <laughs> ransom.
1: <laughs> well, that's what I expected. If if someone had hacked the website, that's what I would have expected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. something like CryptoLocker, a Bitcoin. Yeah. CryptoLocker, uh, you got it. Yeah, there you go. The okay. chat room got it. Okay, I didn't. Okay. Um, uh, hmm, but, yeah, um, but yeah, with the last major version being three years old, it seems like there hasn't really been a lot of movement in TrueCrypt in three years. Yeah. Like I understand. Software gets stable and doesn't have to be updated every month or That's something. That's what I thought. But, at, but with cryptography and stuff, you would think there'd be at least small patches every once in a while. Yeah, so I, more I than do. a year without a release. I really suggest something hinky.
0: That has that has persistently bugged me for a long time now. But at um, the same time, it's, it's been on my mind. It's
1: also, it's something people don't notice, right? Oh, I've noticed. Well, if you go to download it, you would notice. But yeah. if you're just using it day to day, you might not notice that, hey, there hasn't been an update for this. Yeah. If you're going to the website and seeing, you know, go to download it and see the release date on the version is like two years old, then you're like, oh, what's going on here? But Well, and that, that,
0: that, I mean, I don't mean to harp on this whole XP thing, but that's a whole other thing. Like, who in the, who in the security field gives two craps about people on XP? If you're still on XP and you're, you're concerned about security, then you've got other problems. Right. Like, again, to end one of the world's most recognized encryption product projects, which, by the way, has been getting more attention than ever because Edwards, It's come out recently that Edward Snowden threw an encryption party in Hawaii and he taught people how to use TrueCrypt. We know that Glenn Greenwald used TrueCrypt to secure the documents, so it's been covered more than ever. At a time, it's been more popular than ever, and the fact that. And by the way, those guys are using it on Macs, so the fact that it doesn't work on XP is, is that XP's gone doesn't matter to them at all. Again, I just go back to this XP thing out, and I do not buy it. The whole thing seems fishy. And it's almost the whole. It almost predicate. It almost begins by predicating the fact that XP's gone away. Like, well, you know, well, it just means that there's best no Windows ever's gone now.
1: For TrueCrypt, because every OS that's supported now has their own built-in disk encryption. Yeah, I mean, I think the sad Which part is a valid is, statement, but isn't necessarily a valid reason for ending TrueCrypt. But yeah, honestly, with the way it's set up, it's like, why would why do people trust TrueCrypt in the first place? Well, that's true. <laughs> It's written by a bunch of people you don't know and does a, a bunch person. of things and has a really weird license. Like, Linux people use... People that normally harp on and on about open-source licenses and then use TrueCrypt just seems weird to me just because of the way the license is set up.
0: Yeah, no. I, I mean, I actually think all things considered, this could be a developer we'll who's not a very... know
1: exactly what happened and that the conspiracy theories will go on forever. True.
0: But I think there is a... I think... If you weigh up all of the conspiracy theories, I think the one theory that to me would tip the scale in one direction is essentially burned-out developer, not a very good
1: communicator, maybe stressed out right. about that audit There's coming. Like, why does the web page look so bad? Because if I'm quitting a project, I'm not going to spend a week making a nice yeah. web page for yeah. my resignation. You're too right? busy dropping the mic. You've, you're done. You're checking out. Yeah. Exactly. Um,
0: I just the, the it, I just go back to it. Just why not then? Just say, okay, have at it, world. It's yours right. now. Well, Here, here's part my of the problem
1: is that with copyright law, it might not be possible for him to, like, if yeah, he doesn't own All it, right. he can't change the license. You're right. You're right. Uh, just, but, yeah, weird now. It's just weird. We'll just see what happens. Yes. Uh, there are some interesting projects. There's um, a thing for Dragonfly BSD that uses TrueCrypt, uh, or it's, it's compatible with TrueCrypt. I don't know it. Possible. It doesn't use any of the TrueCrypt code, but all of its own, which means that it might be possible to extract a TrueCrypt implementation from that hmm. for somebody to actually make an open source TrueCrypt uh, that is under a BSD license that people could use. Uh, yeah, and I know I don't know why, but
0: I know over on the wiki.mandriva.com there's a real Crypt project, which is an application from Mandriva, which I don't even I don't even know, uh, which is based on TrueCrypt. It only differs in a few small ways. Like, a, attributions where they have to. So there are some projects out there that are are based on it. But
1: right. Um, I didn't have time to read the whole license, and the license file has, like, six licenses in it and doesn't really indicate which applies to which part. <laughs> Convenient. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, a bunch of people talked about the change of the license, but they didn't have a diff between the two, for so you could actually see what the difference was.
0: Yes, I know. I know Mandriva is Mandrake chat room. Jeez. Well, uh, this has been an interesting. Oh, and Krebs also had a good write up on it. We should point people to.
1: Yes, uh, I have the link to that in the show notes. Yes, so uh, uh, I mentioned to that he basically believes that TrueCrypt is over as well. Yeah, and he doesn't seem mostly quoting uh, the guy who is leading the audit for it, uh, who says that he believes that this is real and that it's not a
0: who is a self admitted quote unquote TrueCrypt critic.
1: Right. Well, c- yes, yeah. he started the audit of TrueCrypt because right. he expected it to be horrible. Uh, although he admits that so far he hasn't been able to find anything wrong with it.
0: Well, but uh, yeah, next phase begins. In next week's episode of TechSnap, we'll answer a viewer email about how to fully replace full drive encryption that is cross-platform, true crypt style, and we could use some of your input on that too. So stay tuned. That's coming up in next week's episode. You can see we're still kind of we're still kind of processing all of this. Uh, it's a real challenge. You know what else is a real challenge is selecting the right hardware, especially when you're an enterprise and especially when your name and reputation are on the line. That's why Alan and I recommend IX Systems. You can find out more by going to IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. IX Systems is where we buy our hardware. Alan has deployed it throughout Scale Engine, and here our back end infrastructure at Jupiter Broadcasting for the storage is IX Systems. We sit in front of a virtualizer and it has been amazing. The great thing about iX Systems is they can custom build these solutions for you. You really are working with experts. They have a white glove approach to all of this and they do burn-in testing. They also have a really interesting blog. Go to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That lets them know you appreciate them supporting the TechSnap program. It also gives you an opportunity to download their comprehensive white paper on the ultimate guide to buying a new ser- server for open source tasks. Eleven key traits you've got to demand from a hardware provider. This can help you get the conversation started with management. Trust me, I've been in IT for a long time. I've never seen a company that combines the technical expertise, the software side, the support, and the sales the way IX does. It's pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's really a treat. It's really amazing. I mean, it truly is one of the treats in our industry. Check out their blog, too. They did a, a post on supercomputing 2014. It was a little bit back, but I think it might have missed your attention. And it's fascinating to see what kind of hardware discussions they're having at these meetings. Everything from free NAS up to the big stuff, the really big iron stuff, the crazy stuff that IX Systems builds. They've got the whole range, and they can provide something for a small office to a huge enterprise. iXsystems.com Slash tech snap. All right. Well, next up is this new hot trend that we've been picking up on recently, and apparently it's one that you've picked up on too. The whole celebrity name and treatment for big security vulnerabilities? Well, we tackle that in our next clip. Okay, Alan. You know, it's a phenomenon you and I have noticed quite a bit on the show, and that's sort of like these celebrity bugs, the branding of these bugs to like give them a name yep. and a logo. And we've got an article that kind of breaks some of that down, don't we?
1: Uh, Yeah. The over people at, behind uh, it? ZDNet, they talk a little bit about, uh, they talk to some of the people that okay. uh, have been responsible for some of the naming of the stuff, and uh, they have kind of a breakdown of what happened with uh, Heartbleed and also a little bit about uh, Shellshock uh, and kind of comparing those and talking with uh, ISA partners, the guys that uh, named the Sandworm team, yeah, and uh, basically getting the different sides of the story and looking at the pros and cons of having names for bugs like this and and things like that. It's definitely Basically raising all the questions and to see what people are, are thinking. I mean, it's something I know that not
0: just you and I have noticed is becoming more and more common. And yeah, I'm on the fence. I don't really know. I, part of me thinks it actually is a good thing in some ways, you know, getting awareness out there. It's, it's,
1: it's good and bad. You know, there's a certain level of fatigue. So we yeah. can't do it for everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It doesn't make know. it sound as bad or serious if they're all doing it. Right. Right. And so, you know, if we need to reserve it for the serious ones, who decides what's serious enough? Uh, yeah, you know, how yeah. do we prevent the small stuff from, you know, yeah, there's a lot of questions. Uh, but, yeah, it talks about the advantages and disadvantages of uh, naming the bugs like that, uh, behind scenes info on how it came about and the different things that happened and um, a lot of the criticism that went on, on in all the different directions. Okay. And uh, maybe we can kind of come up with a, a system for doing this better in the future. Mm, okay. right. Definitely. So they say, uh, if the bug is dangerous enough, it gets a name, right? So Heartbleed, uh, the way Heartbleed was branded changed the way we talk about security. Uh, But did uh, giving bugs a logo make them frivolous? Or (laughs) is it the evolution of what information security is going to be from now on?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, So Heartbleed was discovered sometime before uh, Friday, March 21st by a Google security engineer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was later shared with OpenSSL and Red Hat. And then later on, shared with uh, Cloudflare and then also Facebook and Akamai. Uh, so the first problem there is, why does Google get to decide who gets responsible disclosure and who doesn't? Yeah. That is interesting. Uh, you know? Uh, and I think a lot of the sharing that went on there was kind of back-channel stuff, not, uh, you know, official stuff. Yes, very and, much so. You know, then Google adopted the whole Apple style, we're not going to mention who we said what to when. Because uh, we don't want to be liable for the fact that this was all, you know, done. But maybe wrong. then,
0: maybe that's a sign they shouldn't have been doing
1: it like that in the first place. Exactly, or more, it's a sign that people did stuff that maybe Google didn't approve of, but they're not going to out their security guys and so on.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. It might, doesn't necessarily mean it was. Yeah, it might not have been a policy from the top at all. Right? It might right, have been, or
1: it might have been a lack of policy and procedure for dealing with you yeah. know S- something so critical scale bug. Right. Because it's kind of a different thing. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so uh, they got reported back then, and then uh, um, things advanced, and the OpenSSL guys had uh, decided that on April 9th they would do a disclosure, a coordinated disclosure of the bug. Uh, meanwhile, uh, in Finland, the security company Codenomicon had discovered the Heartbleed bug on April third and reported it to their national cybersecurity center, uh, CERT FI, um, the following day, which would be April fourth, and. Um, you know and also, by this time, more and more people had heard uh, at least rumors mm. and yes. stuff and yep. and people were spreading the word. you know it's the typical thing with any kind of secret. you people start showing off by telling certain people yeah. and then, yeah. and then so, the rumors I'll, start I'll tell you the secret, but you can't tell anyone else and then that person's obviously <laughs> going to do the same thing and it <laughs> it's like high school or yep. grade school all over again. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, the Finnish company, Kodomicon, uh, They immediately went uh, to work on a marketing plan, right? Uh, This discovery was going to launch their small firm no one had ever heard of Mm. to, like, internet superstardom, and, you know, so they made a logo, and they got a website, and they came up with the name, and they were all set so that when the public disclosure happened on the 9th, uh, they would have this website, they would tell people how to fix it. They'd be in a position Uh, to sort of own the news in a way. Yeah, and so on. Uh, So the original public disclosure was supposed to be on the 9th, however... After details started to leak, and the OpenSSL team decided that uh, since more than one group had already reported the bug, uh, you know the CodeNameCon guys had discovered it, uh, it meant that more people could discover it, and that maybe bad guys could discover it and start exploiting it. So it it became better to uh, do the security release now as opposed to uh, waiting for the ninth. And that's why everything happened early on the 7th and a little less organized than people were hope for.
0: Yeah, in fact, they say in the, uh, they say in the article that uh, it was a 20, uh, 27-year-old Finnish graphic designer who just had a few hours to put the logo together because the site was going live immediately. So he had to hustle to, to design the, the
1: Heartbleed logo. Which Yeah, and that's why it's so simple. Yeah, but, but it works. But the, the crazy part is, um, or the, the genius part they did there was in addition to you know the, the PNG logo or whatever on the site, they made an SVG, right? the scalable vector graphic, mm-hmm. and they included that available for download. So it made it really easy for like, you know, CNN to make a news logo out of it. Yeah. Or we saw like how many t-shirts and hats and all kinds of, like, it just kind of boomed all by itself. It was everywhere. Just because they made that logo in a way you could resize it to make it fit on it, everything. That was a pretty, that was a genius insight by the Code yeah. Comic Con guy, really. Exactly. Uh, just the graphics designer was like, yeah, this way everybody can do it uh you know i don't they did, probably didn't put enough thought in it to think oh we you know they didn't make t-shirts and try to sell them on the website obviously yeah. but it just <laughs> they just it happened that that's what happened mm-hmm. <clears throat> but so half an hour after OpenSSL published the security advisory on the morning of the 7th cloudflare had their blog post yeah. up which I mean. seems like might have been written and ready to be to deploy as well where they bragged uh in a blog in a tweet uh, that they were the first to protect their customers and how Cloudflare oh. was enacting <laughs> responsible disclosure, even <laughs> though they had gotten the information through a back channel mm-hmm. and not through responsible disclosure. Super responsible. Uh, Super. But, yeah, so they were basically trying to be like, oh, we were the first one to protect our customers because we've known about it since before everybody else. And, and you know, they were being the the douches they always are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they. they they're too good at that marketing PR stuff. Like, uh, you know, remember we talked about when they had the, oh, the biggest denial of service tech ever? And, yes. And, and yes. the backbones were like, no, it's not. Right. That yeah. happens every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But
0: they made, they got a lot of traction out of it,
1: though. Yeah. Because the, they had the guy and they, they convinced CNN and they, they were on the news, right? And the, the you know, sysadmins and, and network engineers that work in in the data centers and stuff aren't on the news, mm-hmm. but you know the director of marketing for Cloudflare gets on the news yeah uh so an hour after cloudflare's little surprise, uh tweeted and announced their uh that the bug and gave it the name uh, and launched their website because originally remember they were planning to do this on the ninth, but when they saw that cloudflare was uh already you know trying to claim they did everything or whatever uh. They uh, CodeNavicon released their stuff in the website, uh, which had the instructions on how to fix it. When ver- uh, lists, you know, which versions of uh, different operating systems were vulnerable. Because if you remember, the uh, FreeBSD 9 wasn't vulnerable because it was using uh, a version of OpenSSL that didn't have the feature that had the yeah. bug in it. Yeah. Uh, but FreeBSD 10 was, and so on. And so there's lots of uh, chance for confusion over which, uh, which OSs and which packages and so on were vulnerable, so they had all that information spelled out. And obviously, like we mentioned, they had that SVG logo that uh, made it easier for everything to go. Anyway, Yeah, sure. So did. then uh, Heartbleed, which was originally called CVE-2014-0160, uh, became a household term overnight. Even though average households still had no actual understanding of what it was, everybody knew that it was a thing, right? And... The media mostly didn't understand what Heartbleed was either, but it had a logo and it was easy to splash that logo up on every screen in the world, right? And every a domain to send, site. and a well-designed website to send more people yes, to, get get more to get more information, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was uh, good because that meant organizers and organizations who needed to uh, remediate Heartbleed uh, knew it was critical and moving fast, right? So, like, uh, the Canadian government shut down the tax website because it might have been vulnerable, and, and you know, it's true. Everybody uh, worked on it faster because there was all this news coverage, right? If it had just been another CVE and it hadn't been on the news, you know, people's bosses wouldn't have been harping on that. Have we fixed Heartbleed yet? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, in certain critical cases, maybe that amount of media coverage is good. But like most things, media just sensationalizes everything, and and it doesn't necessarily help. <laughs> right. We had the. Um, uh, Bruce Schneier thing the other day talking about how, you know, just harping on every one of these is is just going to make people numb to them instead yeah. of helping, right?
0: Yeah. Which has been a concern of ours, too.
1: Yeah. Uh, so in the end, it seems Heartbleed was a success, right? Most systems were patched within a couple of weeks, which is obviously too long, but still, uh, you know, we've seen other critical patches for Java and stuff where people are still running <laughs> 1.6. Yeah. Uh, And so seeing, you know, 85% of all the systems get patched quickly enough is good. Although a lot of systems didn't follow the full procedure, right? Only like 20% of people ever did the whole revoke your old SSL certificate and get a new one. And the password resets and all that stuff. Um, Whereas, uh, you know, we've seen some stories since then about, oh, because of Heartbleed and we didn't reset our passwords, our VPN got Mm -hmm. Heartbleed and they had the passwords and so they got into it later and were able to sit on it for a long time uh, until we found out they were in there and had to change the password. Yeah. <laughs> and we've uh, suspected it in a couple other hacks uh, where we haven't known how they got in, and we're like, I wonder if you know, they got a password. That they got the password they used to get in from uh, running Heartbleed against that endpoint or whatever. Uh, so you know, not everybody did all the steps they did, uh, but at least they did something uh, which probably helped make sure that Heartbleed wasn't a bigger thing than it could have been. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And then, so, on to the next thing, uh, when they talk to uh, iSight partners about, the, uh, in this case, rather than naming viruses and stuff, they're naming groups, uh, right? So, you know, we had the uh, APT1, the Chinese (laughs) group, or the the sandworm group, which really confused the media because they thought it was a worm and it was a bunch of people. Not the same thing at all, Right. Uh, they happen to be using one exploit at the time. So I think that one honestly caused more confusion than it actually helped. Uh, But they have a decent justification for why they do it that way, right? They say, in justifying the name, uh, the Eyesight partner says, without naming these teams, it would be impossible for a network defender to keep track of all the different ones. Uh, We think that's essential because immediately Hmm. or uh, intimately understanding these teams is the first step to mounting an active defense. Uh, Giving a team a a name, as they did with Sandworm, uh, helps the practitioners and researchers keep track and uh, attribute tactics and techniques and procedures. So it's like you know we notice that this team always does this, whereas this other team is doing this other thing. So you know which one when you're seeing an attack, you can better understand which one it might be and things like that. Uh yeah. It seems though, hmm, you know, when I hear this, it seems like it
0: it went well. Uh, I I kind of I kind of would have liked some better uh, disclosure. Before it went public, I mean, sure that you could quibble that One? stuff. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, that was kind of a mess. Um, like quite a few things happened all over the place. But
0: if you change out uh, some of the components, this could also be a disaster. Like, it, it doesn't mean yep. just because Heartbleed worked out doesn't mean the next time it's going to work out really well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, honestly, when you're looking at it, it looks like Heartbleed was supposed to go fine, uh, but because of the scale and the the just how unique and big this particular bug was mm-hmm. um, people kind of lost their heads a little bit, and uh you know too many people talked and yeah. honestly, it seems like the time scale was too big like normally you're you're asking people to sit on it for a week or something right uh in this case uh people were sitting on it for far too long mm-hmm. um, but uh at least uh <laughs> that one happened to work out, but uh Yeah, so on to the next thing. Uh, We had uh, vulnerabilities like Poodle. Yeah. Uh, They cited an article here from uh, CNN Money. It's awful. uh, That was alarmingly bad. Like, you know, the reporter is like, woof, woof, woof in the middle of the article.
0: Poodles are attacking the internet is the headline.
1: Yeah, and it totally downplays that, you know, this is an important thing where, you know, your crypto could be downgraded and bad things can happen.
0: Yeah. This would be an example of where the branding doesn't work out so well yeah uh yeah there's you know, literally a woof in the middle of the article
1: yeah and, and a bunch of dog references and it just makes the whole thing look like a joke it reads more like an onion article except for the onions more well written yeah um you know in this case poodle was a little bit of a backronym but you know they didn't pick it because it had anything to do with dogs they did because it was the acronym right it was a padding oracle attack mm-hmm. downgrade legacy encryption or whatever um so you know it's a clever name technically but uh Obviously didn't have the targeted effect for uh you know. Yeah. Compared to like what was the other ones? Like Beast and yeah. uh yeah. what was the other one? I forget, but yeah. Um so that one probably didn't go so well. It, I don't think Poodle ever had a logo per se, and so on. Uh but then you have Shell Shock mm. as like the complete anti case, right? This is an independent researcher that came up with it, not a company. Uh so he didn't have a graphics designer uh, and so on. <laughs> um, so it didn't have a logo or an official website, which is actually part of the problem. Uh, I think even with Poodle, there was like a, a Google yes, blog yes. post with the paper, but then yeah. some other site kind of became semi-official site and it had some longer domain. Like it wasn't the whole domain wasn't dedicated to this. It was just a sub page. And, and so it made it harder to find stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely did.
1: So sometimes having a dedicated page with all the information is useful, but then who's responsible for maintaining that and updating it and how long does it live and all kinds of craziness. <clears throat> but yeah, so uh, there's a timeline over on the security list, but uh, the Shellshock is quite an interesting one. Uh, when it was actually discovered, the author called it Bashdoor, as in backdoor. Uh, and, <laughs> and then uh, he had done responsible disclosure to the creator of uh, Bash, and I uh, was working with uh, some of the distros to get that sorted out, and was planning to release it to the um, uh, the other distros and, and, and have a, a normal patch cycle. but uh, in one the, somebody somewhere that got the advance notice about it uh, took that advance notice and showed it to the press. Uh, and so someone was obviously planning to do something with this, uh, and it went further. Mm. and the person who leaked it. Uh, or the press, or somebody came up with the name Shellshock, not the creator of it. Oh, okay. Uh, So this led to some immediate confusion. Is Shellshock the same thing as Bashdoor? Yeah. (laughs) Right? And, you know, uh, I, for one, had never heard of Bashdoor until I read about this article today. Uh, You know, it was Shellshock when I heard about it uh, in the middle of a conference while I was in Europe. Um, And it's further because the initial fix for Shellshock vulnerability didn't entirely solve the problem. Right, I remember that. uh, so, if you read the actual timeline, the very first fix uh, never was released It because it was trivial to work around it. and went back and forth many times, and then the final fix came out, and it turned out that didn't fix everything. Uh, and so, then there was a second fix that actually fixed it. So, people thought they were patched, and they weren't, right? Mm, okay. Um, and then... I remember. We had all these other vulnerabilities that were discovered when people started looking. You know, when people saw what the vulnerability was that was Shellshock, uh, they started... Digging into Bash, and we immediately found like four other vulnerabilities in Bash yeah, that yeah. were unrelated necessarily. Yeah. Right. They're maybe tangentially related, but were not the same bug at all. Each of these got a unique CVE number uh, to be tracked properly, but they were all kind of collectively began to be called Shellshock. Even though, you know, if you installed the patch for the CVE that was the original Shellshock vulnerability that was fixed, you would think you were secure, but you were missing three other patches. Because you patched shock, but there was these other things that were now becoming called shock, even though they weren't shock, right? And so, in this case, having that one name almost kind of backfired in that it became, the meaning was, was less uh, specific, right? And that caused all kinds of problems.
0: Yes, no kidding.
1: And, you know, it didn't have a logo or a website and, and so on. Where's the fun in that? Uh, so they had a great closing quote here, uh, of kind of relating to shell shock back to the Heartbleed. Mm-hmm. So the researchers didn't tell their closest business buddies uh, in a game of telephone uh, or one in which Heartbleed became uh, an arm race of egos, insider information trading and uh, opportunism. Right. So that's kind of what happened. Right. Uh, people that knew about it you know, wanted to, uh, show off with how much they knew and they knew right. to speak secret. Uh, so they went and told other people, there's a lot of money in this industry now too. Yeah. Uh, no, with a heart uh, the Google side, obviously there wasn't much, you know, they, they weren't trying to make a name for themselves as a security researcher. Now right. Codenomicon was yeah. obviously, yeah. um, but it doesn't look like it was it wasn't Cognomicon that was leaking the information to Cloudflare and and other people and letting them patch before everybody else, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so you had a bit of that. And then obviously the opportunism of Cloudflare being like, oh, we were the first to protect our customers. Right. Like, technically wasn't Google the first to protect their customers? <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh, and and so on. Uh, and the insider information trading, right? We've had, you know how did Facebook find out about it from Google? It's like, was there some little, (laughs) I'm just picturing, you know, the people that work at the pair of places end up at the same bar and and some chatting happens and then all of a sudden uh, Facebook knows about this secret vulnerability or whatever, right? Yeah, and
0: and, and it helps to be in the inside club in that case.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, I don't know the whole story, but I know uh, there was some fallout from that type of stuff. You know, I uh, don't want to mention any names or something, but uh, someone I know was asked to leave their employer and find different employment after they uh, felt that the way things happened was not correct. Hmm. Really? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I suppose there's all kinds of things like that that happen behind the scenes when these big, big things happen and we don't even ever really know about it.
1: Yes. And when there's insider information trading and it's like, well, that's not fair. If you're going to tell these people, you have to tell other people as well. Right? Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: Well, Alan, uh, it's it's
1: been an this
0: probably been I don't
1: know. So I yeah, think one of the more a couple of questions up basically. Uh, so who gets to decide what bugs are bad enough to get a name instead of just a CVE number? Right. Uh, well, should MITRE, I... the people that assign CVE numbers, start tracking the names and attaching them as part of the CVEs?
0: Well, it would seem like sometimes the names get decided in a sense by the press because the press just sort of start collectively calling it shell shock, right. and that's and, what it and... becomes.
1: Exactly, it kind of reminds you of uh, they kind of talk about this a little bit in the in the article of you know naming serial killers. It's usually not the cops that name the serial killer; it's the media. Um, but especially in the cases of these uh, security things, the media doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, they were calling heart a virus, and it's not a virus, right? And so on, and so they're not really competent to be naming it either. And obviously, there's downside of you know if if the researchers are naming it. Um, you kind of have this – is it an independent researcher who's just giving it a name to help track it or is it a company who's doing it to try to make a name for themselves right. kind of thing?
0: which is going to happen more and more. It's a big market. Yeah. Uh, so I think looking back at 2014, this is one of the more interesting things. This kind of started, what, uh, back in April? and it just yeah. sort of picked up. And it's it's like when you find an asteroid or any other kind of discovery, like somebody wants to name it. There's there's that element, yep. too. It's like, I am the one that discovered it. I want to put a name on it. There's almost like a pride I'm aspect to it. I'm
1: surprised that none of those, uh, unlike comets, have not been named with the person's name. Yeah. But I guess you know, the, the, the the vulnerabilities have a negative connotation, and you don't want your name <laughs> forever plastered over the security flaw that was used to ruin That's people's true. businesses. and stuff. So,
0: that is a good point.
1: Uh, but yeah, so... Uh, It's an interesting question whether, you know, the CVE numbers should start tracking the name as well just to kind of create that cross-reference there. Uh, But then, you know, who officially signed the name? And then we have like an aliases field because remember the the W get one. uh, People were trying to come up with names for it and none of those names officially stuck. But, you know, people have proposed names and started talking about it using those names. And how do we decide what names are official? And it just leads to a whole mess. Yeah, it does. Uh, and then the other thing is looking at who gains uh, more from naming the bug. Is it the end user who gets protected because the extra attention about it meant it got fixed? Uh, or, you know, they're just aware of it so they know to look out for it or whatever, uh, and are able to protect themselves? Or is it more, you know, the PR-powered firms mm-hmm. uh, that exploit it for their own good, like the security researchers, uh, the commercial security researchers and so on, uh, rather than the academic type? Uh, and, you know, places like Cloudflare that just want to uh, take advantage of name. it to, to make a name for so themselves. This is why I think it's not going away is this question right here. Because in a way, everybody benefits. so much money to be made, yeah. especially in commercial security research now, yeah. Yeah. where before it was always academic, right? You, right. you wrote a paper and you got yes. to present at a conference and that was it. Right. Now you're talking about... You know, rock stars and you yeah. know crazy perks and, and working and in a silly offices. You know, uh, like the and
0: these guys, these these security consulting companies are getting funded at you know twenty six. There was a story today about one uh, that I've never even heard of before that just got a round of twenty six million dollars in funding. Right? It's just a lot. So there's a lot of money for them. There's yeah, positive and, aspects and for end users. About, there's positive talked, aspects for the press. Everybody's gonna. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in. Alan. Everybody's in on this.
1: It's well, not going we, away. We, we kind of talked about that uh, with that article about the eleven reasons why this was. Bad the other week, right? Is like the media doesn't know what they're talking about, but they're getting copy out of it, so they're just going to keep printing it, right?
0: Well, but in a way, like it is easier for some, for the for okay. So if I'm watching CNN and Wolf Blitzer's up there talking about Heartbleed, I'm like, what the heck is Wolf talking about? I can at least go Google Heartbleed, but like remembering like MSKB one nine or yeah CVE dash you know like that's a lot harder as a somebody yeah. watching casually to go get more info. So that's another benefit of it being branded is it makes finding information out. At least somewhat easier. I don't think yeah. it's going away. I guess we'll and we'll be right here to watch it. It's been mm-hmm. an interesting development of 2014. <laughs> Out of all of the headlines, this one said something about ultrasonic networks and, and and like a mesh network. And I thought this is definitely a tech snap story. So is this where we start, Alan?
1: Yes. Uh, This one's about exfiltrating data from secure networks using an ultrasonic mesh network.
0: Well, there you go. Of course it is.
1: (laughs) So uh, researchers at the Fraunhofer Institute uh, in Germany have developed a protocol based on underwater communication protocols. So protocols for talking between submarines Mm -hmm. uh, and actually retrofitted them for use with uh, laptop speakers and microphones.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's cool.
1: So, uh, for those that don't know, the Fraunhofer Institute is famous for having invented the MP3 codec, mm-hmm. uh, and was also a significant contributor to H. two hundred and sixty four and MPEG four AVC, which is what we use for this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, they've issued a paper that describes a covert channel that can be used to circumvent firewalls, intrusion prevention systems, and you know all types of network security. Basically,
0: this is basically to, to
1: bypass an air gap. Maybe that we don't. If you can communicate via microphone basically. and speaker. Okay, yeah. so uh, it, it'll work across an air gap as well, but even just, you know, regular network where you, it's all firewalled off or whatever. Okay. So normally, you know, if you have a secure system, you would air gap it or you would, you know, put it up on a network where it could only access certain parts of the internet or, you know, only connections that are specifically blessed could get out mm. and anything else was set off an alarm. So if you manage to install a key logger on that machine, you don't want to then have it connect out to your website to send you the, the key log, because then people would, uh, then the intrusion prevention system might detect it and you would get caught, and that's right. what you want. Right. Or the system's air-gapped and there's no other way out. Uh, so what this they've come up with is an ultrasonic sound that would be emitted by the laptop speakers and then received by the microphone in another laptop that was also infected. And then they could just keep hopping across laptops until eventually they got you know, to an outside wall where someone outside the building could maybe pick up the signal.
0: Right, and then pass it to some other kind of Or even just,
1: or... you know, if it's an air gap, just get onto the regular network and then pass it or mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with what they've designed so far, it has a range of up to about 20 meters, uh, which is quite far. That's uh, I don't know how many feet that is, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the bandwidth is pretty abysmal, though. At 20 bits per second. Well, I guess it depends on what you need to send.
0: That's yeah. pretty bad uh, though well
1: if if the data's so secret that it's uh on an air gapped machine <laughs> you want it at whatever cost yeah so, <laughs> you'll take it
0: you you'll know. just maybe it's just text you can get you know yes and no type things if if at worst yeah. case
1: yeah, or you know if you have you know the eight hours at night when no one's around right. to copy the data, you can start re-
0: well, well, and flying. if it's ultrasonic, then it could be going on during the day, and nobody would even exactly. hear it
1: right yes. so. Uh, so the proof of concept was created by installing a key logger on a laptop. Uh, for their experiment, they used Lenovo T400 laptops, uh, which are quite old by standard now. So I imagine it's because they could get a bunch of them for cheap or whatever. But uh, so then they put the key logger on the the victim laptop, and then it would the key logger included software that would make it send out or emit the ultrasonic uh, sounds, which are inaudible to the human ear. You can't hear them. And then that would be picked up by other infected machines using their microphone and then repeated later out of their uh, speakers Mm -hmm. and then picked up by the next laptop Mm -hmm. and so on and so on, Mm -hmm. Uh, allowing them to extend the transmission range so they could get outside of the secure area, you know, the locked room or the building that you're not allowed inside of or whatever.
0: Am I remembering correctly that there was some speculation that perhaps Stuxnet used some sort of. Audio transmission technique to spread from one machine to another is that ring a bell to you I at
1: all? Remember hearing that okay I, I've heard talk about stuff like that in yeah okay. reading monitors through it, walls it might have just been speculation yeah, but uh that's possible, but I'm pretty sure that Stuxnet was carried in on a USB stick. Mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know it's a cool idea mm-hmm, but this is one that's in the open for everybody to see now mm-hmm. Anyway, so eventually the signal would either reach outside the protected area, where the it could hit a laptop that the attacker controlled, and they would have their copy of the information then, or just reach a machine that's on the regular internet or whatever, and it could be retransmitted via TCP or whatever. Right. Uh, then, uh, so the paper goes on to describe all that in great technical detail. If you're interested, it's a great read. Uh, and then they talk about the countermeasures, how they could stop this. Oh, okay, happening. yeah. Uh, so the easiest countermeasure would be to just disable the speaker and microphone hardware. <laughs> yeah. Which <laughs> well, so. might make sense if it's, you know, a super secure machine for this or that. But if you want to be able to make a Skype call from your machine or whatever. Or listen to my MP3s. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, although, you know, if the machine's got super secret data on it, maybe you shouldn't be using Skype. Yeah, tell that to the
0: users.
1: (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, disabling the speaker and microphone entirely is not always the possible thing. I suppose so, So, yeah. uh, They then suggest maybe a low-pass filter that would just remove the ultrasonic frequencies. So it, it wouldn't emit the sound if you can't hear it. And so the user wouldn't notice any difference. It would just make it impossible to do these secret things.
0: Could you also blast a room with ultrasonic white noise to just sort of... Possibly, yes. Huh.
1: Uh, then the other idea was just instead of a low pass filter, was to just shift down the ultrasonic frequencies into the audible range. Uh-huh. So now, you know, if the machine ever got infected, people would hear the random screeching noises coming out of the laptop and be like, "What's going on? My laptop is infected."
0: Well, what about like using this just to allow inter-device communication over an ad hoc like little mini LAN?
1: Well, then you could use regular like ad hoc Wi Fi. I suppose you so. You To make it, sick. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just like the idea of them the being up. off my Wi-Fi, but devices still being able to communicate. Like you know, twenty
1: bits per second. Yeah, it's not like enough. Is it? It'd have to be like out of your dog. It'd have
0: to be. <laughs> You're right. The poor dogs. They would That's be going I, crazy. With
1: ultrasonic it might be too high for the dogs. Yeah. as well, well, yeah, maybe. But for the for the
0: one or two breeds that might be able to pick it up, they would be they would be just terrorized. Why is the dog attacking my laptop? Right. <laughs> I was thinking, Man, like, hackers. I was thinking, like, the uh, the the uh, bathroom light tells the downstairs coffee machine that you know one for on, zero for off. So, he, so he's come in, he's turned on the light. So turn the coffee machine on. That kind of state sharing information would be neat. But you're right, they would just do Ethernet it over Wi-Fi. Over power line would be, yeah, or yeah, yeah. I suppose so. This is more for covertly passing information,
1: yeah. and well, especially when it's limited to twenty meters and twenty bits per second. And at that twenty meters, ultra. I'm almost 100% sure ultrasonic sound doesn't go through anything. So it would have to have line of sight. Mm. Like it won't go through a wall at all. Oh, I didn't know that. If I'm not incorrect. Well, that would severely limit. The uh, ultrasonic rodent repellent things I have in my basement to keep the mice out of my basement uh, are based on that. It's like, yeah. Okay. If you put something in front of it, it'll stop working because it, it won't go through anything.
0: Okay. I have an old ultrasonic remote TV sensor. Yeah, I was thinking of that too, Netminers. I used to have something kind of like that.
1: Uh, Then the paper also goes on to discuss a host-based intrusion detection system that would analyze all audio coming in and out of a machine to look for suspicious signals.
0: Oh, could you imagine as part of an IDS having like microphones in your most secure rooms listening for these
1: types of transmissions? Or rather... on a secure laptop listening to everything coming in over the microphone and right. looking for anything that looks suspicious.
0: Right. So the so it's so software on the machine always with the mic always on, always listening. Wow. Boy, that's that's such a creepy level of paranoia. I don't even I'm so glad I don't even have to worry about that kind of stuff cuz that's the well, kind of it's stuff not that,
1: recording like, everything you say. It's,
0: no, I know. It's just like just yeah. even having to worry about like somebody using ultrasonic transmissions to steal my data. I'm glad I'm not in any right. kind of industry but, uh, where have, that's
1: a Yeah, you'd have to be doing something pretty fancy. To yeah, pretty fancy.
0: All right, well, anything else on that story?
1: Uh, the PDF's there, and it has all the goodness.
0: Including some good graphs and some good uh, little uh, visual demonstrations of the transmission, like in an office building and stuff. <laughs> uh, all right, well, Alan wrote in, but it's only Alan with a single L. It says, a long-time listener of TechSnap, loved the show. Last time and many times before... You mentioned island hopping. Can you tell us more about that and how it can be done if a computer if computer C does not have access to the internet, but you can get to it through computer A and B? And another scenario, if you break into a Windows box, how can you run commands on a Unix or Linux system? I can't imagine how this could be done, so I hope you understand my question. Or if it's easier for you to explain, he include some examples and he linked to several previous tech snaps: 86, mm-hmm. 13, 89, and thirty-four, where we've talked about island hopping. Yeah. And he also had one more question. Alan has three lands in his house, so could someone island hop? Uh, could someone island hop due to software vulnerabilities from one land to another? Thanks
1: for the great yeah. show. Okay, so uh, say you have a business here and you have computer A which is, say, the Secretary's workstation and it's on the Internet. Uh, And then you have uh, Computer B, which is, say, where you do the credit card processing and that doesn't have access to the Internet. But the Secretary has access to that Computer B so that when someone phones up to give a credit card, she can enter it into the system. So if you're coming from the Internet, you can't ever get to Computer B, but you can get Computer A, and once you're on Computer A, you can get to Computer B. Uh, So that would be called eileen hopping. So you'd, you know, send a phishing email to the secretary and get her to run a Java exploit that now lets you run whatever code you want on her computer. So you can install a Trojan that allows you to connect to her computer and control it. Then you can, on that computer, you can download uh, PuTTY or the less interactive uh, version, uh, I think it's called PSSH. It's a command line version of PuTTY for Windows. So it gives you more like the Telnet command line So that when you're running stuff from a command line, it's going back and forth with like a pipe instead of a GUI. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, And then, with that way, you can set it up so that you can connect to other computers. Or the Trojan can just act as a proxy by making the TCP connection for you and then just relaying the data out. Uh, Interesting example, when uh, I was uh, a student in my high school... Uh, I wrote a Trojan in Visual Basic 6, (laughs) because that's what I did in my spare time. Awesome. Uh, And it had a bunch of different features. It had a a limited set of features that I made a control panel for and gave to the teachers. And so they agreed to allow me to install my Trojan on every computer in the school. Wow. So the teacher could go and get a list of the computers in their classroom and click on one and see what was on the screen and, and, you know, monitor the students that way basic simple Trojan spyware type thing (laughs) Uh what they didn't seem to grasp is that when I built it I would have built a much bigger control panel with many many more options for my use um the problem was they had a NAT to get out to the internet and there so there's no way for me at home to connect in and control a computer at the school you know after school and things like that so uh I got them to let me install a server So I wrote this little server app that got deployed in the math department office, and all the computers in the high school would connect to that server. And then that server would make a backwards tunnel out to my house, (laughs) based on a DynDNS hostname. And then, so I I would run a program, a proxy on my computer, and every computer in the high school would connect to the server at the high school, and the connection between those two would allow me to say, hey, I want to talk to the computer in the math lab, and I'd be able to control it from home. Awesome! You <laughs> so know, that's a little bit of like backwards island hopping.
0: I had a, uh, I did a, so I would be, I would be hired to come in and do penetration testing. So I would have uh, network level access on the LAN, but I wouldn't have any administrative level access. And I had this client who they decided to run their website there at their office, but they had it within a DMZ because it contained uh, credit card information and stuff like that. They wanted to have it protected and the way you would manage this website cuz it had old back end cms so that way staff members could put new images on the website and things like new new pe- promo packages and stuff like that well they would lock it down by the firewall they'd say only 192.168.0.25 can access that cms management page and i didn't know which machine it was so through some little through network sniffing i eventually saw that one computer on the lan 0.25 was talking to an IP on the firewall, and I figured that, that must be the DMZ IP address. So then using Metasploit I, and Nessus, uh, I scanned this machine. I found a vulnerability that was on this computer. I think this must have been Windows 7, maybe pre-SP1. Can't remember, it was a little while ago. And Metasploit, once I, once I knew the vulnerability, I just chose, I just you, know, you go into Metasploit, it's just like a menu of options that you want to throw at a computer. And the one I decided to exploit it included a VNC server. And so I pushed that out to the machine. It executed the VNC server on the Windows desktop. I got that person's screen, and I was right there at their computer. And then from that computer, I was able to hop to that web server that was otherwise locked down by firewall rules, and then I owned the web server. And so yeah. at first, I was getting that just that computer, and then the end, end result was that web server. And that was a minor version of uh, island hopping. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about this target story, and that's a great yeah, example of island hopping. It,
1: but the island hopping, you know— it- Uh, none of the computers necessarily have to be exposed to the internet per se, right? Um, Say it's a much more secure company in in our Island Hopping example, the credit card server is on a completely separate network. Like it's isolated. It doesn't doesn't have a network connection at all. It's just standalone by itself. Say it stores something other than just credit cards or something. Uh, And the secretary's computer, you can't reach over the internet. But if you can email the secretary a phishing email and she gets it and clicks it and opens it, you can install the exploit on her computer that instead of opening a port and waiting for you to connect in, which you won't be able to do because of the firewall, it makes an outbound connection periodically, say, on port 80. So it looks like regular web traffic, except for it's going to a command and control server you have or an exploited server that you took over from somebody else and are doing something quietly so they won't notice. <laughs> um, and now you have this reverse tunnel to be able to access the secretary's computer. Yeah. And you install a virus so that every time she plugs in a USB stick, it infects it. So then she takes that USB stick out of her computer and walks over and plugs it into this computer that's not online at all. And now you can exploit that computer, get data off of it, and copy it back to the USB stick. And then she takes the USB stick back to her computer, and then you can offload it and send it to yourself. I could also picture, you know, if you just infected somebody's
0: computer, uh, an Outlook is such a common target. And every time they wrote an email, it included an attachment. And that attachment was malware. And maybe one in 30 people would run that attachment, and then they would become infected. And eventually, you'd piece together a network of infected
1: users. uh, That's how they uh, attacked um, the Financial Times and The Onion, right? They sent really low-end phishing schemes to everybody at The Onion. uh, Or they tried to exclude people in the IT department, but they sent it out. And then uh, one silly person accepted it and ran the virus. Then they use their address book and the email account of the person who got infected to send a much better, more convincing-looking uh, phishing attempt so that it came, legitimately came from a person that worked at the Onion. Mm-hmm. So when you get an email with an attachment from someone you know and it's something you're expecting you might get, you're much more likely to open it than if it's just some random spam off the internet.
0: And like a lot of times built in email client security, if it's somebody in your address book or in the case of outlook, if it's somebody in your organization, there's a different set of security policies like JavaScript in the email might be executed. Not, not anymore, but back in the day and sometimes still, or just
1: allow attachments versus not.
0: Yeah. So it's, there's a island hopping can be a lot of things, but it's really just about utilizing an exploit on a lower end device and then using that to then, get to a higher-end device and potentially even a higher-end device, and from there on and there on. And you can do the same thing with privilege escalation. It doesn't have to be physical compromises. It can be you get in with an account that has one certain level of permissions, and you use that to either adjust the permissions or get to another account, etc.,
1: yeah, it just means moving sideways through the network to eventually find a host that you can then do something more on.
0: Yeah, and it's it, a lot of times, you know, the original, when it's remote attacks, I find, you know, a lot of times, when we, especially in these stories, it's the monitoring systems, it's the HVAC uh, vendor, it's it's the Nagios box that has firewalls. It's the things
1: people forgot to think about.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it could be, you know, it could be the syslog server, right? I mean, it's like all this crazy stuff that, yeah, exactly. You just It's kind of like a set-it-and-forget-it appliance that ends up. Print servers, yep. right? Print servers. We've even seen those yep. HP printers.
1: in the yeah in the printer. It's not even a print server. It's just the printer happens to run Linux and yeah. Bad things happen.
0: All right. Next question comes in from Nick, and uh, he's got something that's probably on a few folks' mind out there. He's got a career change on the brain. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. I'm currently looking at a career change as I'm very interested in pursuing network and system administration's b- a BS, in uh, network and system administration. Yep. While the idea sounds amazing to me now, I was wondering if you could talk to me about this career path, highs and Lowe's. should i follow this dream is there a better direction to go thanks guys and keep up the great work wow that's boy so he wants us to dump on and give him this the honest truth a little bit right
1: well first of all what is he coming from is kind of important Mm -hmm. uh whether you know that's true but a lot of it comes down to how much do you like it you have to really like it yeah like i'm the kind of person that when i'm having some problem with the computer i can't stop until, until it's fixed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Gotta keep, I think I'll yeah, work all yeah. night. And, totally. Or it's like, <laughs> you know, for me, like the most fun ever is a brand new server and uh, installing all, all the stuff. Yeah. Or like a whole bunch of computers and yeah. getting them to work together just the way are Figuring out want. a little solution to set them all up. And, yeah, yeah. And it's just... Yeah, that's a lot that's, of fun. Like, you know, setting up new servers is m- the thing I like the most. And so at Scale Engine, having to do that all the time is, is great. So. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, I love my day job. So
0: that would be a good, like, test
1: right there if yeah, you enjoy that. Basically, I found in IT there are two types of people. There's the type of people that work on the computer all day at work and go home and don't want to touch a computer. And there's type of people that work at computer all day, and they go home, and they get back on the computer.
0: Yeah, and I usually find those are the people that have a little more drive. You usually yes. come up with a little
1: more solutions because they're yeah. just in it, so it all the you time. Have, you have the worker drones, and then you have the inventors, yeah. kind of. Yeah, and so... It's so like, you know, I understand. You know, I'm not saying the people that work all day on the computer and go home and want to do something else are bad or wrong or something. Right. They're just not like me. It can... You know,
0: if you go work for a company, too, a corporation, it can yeah. be... It can be high stress because they'll say they'll come to you and say, "Well, look, we can't process any orders until you get the system online. This is yeah. costing us thousands of dollars. You've got to get this running. We can't run like this. We have customers calling
1: us and they're angry. Fix it, fix it, fix it." Yeah. So you got to be able to kind of handle those but kind of pressures. But at the pressure. same time, you know, we're a two-person company. When there's something goes wrong, I op- I have to do it. Yeah, uh, and yeah. you know, it means I'm working all the time. If I worked at you know, if I worked at the college as in the IT department, um, you know, I worked nine to Nine to five, when I come home, I switch off. I don't nothing to do with the college. They're done and I can I can still work on the computer and do my yeah. own thing. But you know, the advantage to a big corporation is that you're you can, just one of many and right. you can you can switch it off. You, you kinda can get your own creative it. time at home. Yeah, you can you can stop working mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're doing something yourself, yeah. like as being a consultant. You're yeah. kind of at Always the whim on. of everybody. Yeah. Like, you never get to stop working. When he says
0: he's going for a BS, I usually think that means he's trying to you know,
1: get something yeah, like, he's good for to go a to resume. And, and, yeah. yeah, So probably once to get a desk job. So if you're getting into computer science because you think you're going to make a lot of money, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. If you don't love it, you should do something else. Yeah because yeah. it's it can if you don't like it it's not fun.
0: I'll tell you one thing that I I think maybe I take for granted about the field is uh how fortunate we are that it is not boring. Like yes. you know, there's some fields people become experts on and then that industry is pretty well established and it doesn't really change much over yep. maybe a 20 year career. Yeah. That seems like that would be a little bit of a snoozer. Yeah. Definitely. So there is some advantages there if you like continual challenges but it also means you got to be willing to always be spending your late nights or your extra time learning, trying new yeah. things, going outside the box,
1: and because you know sometimes you work at corporate IT and you don't, right? You just get stuck in the right. You know, yeah. all you're doing is if you're just doing desktop support for Windows XP and then Windows Seven or whatever, yeah, it doesn't seem like anything ever changes, yeah. Uh, but you know, at, like, at some uh, point you're going to find out all of a sudden you, all your skills are dated and you can't get a job somewhere else because you've atrophied.
0: Gatorbyte in the chat room says. Uh, Working on the computers never work. It's fun, which is why when I get home, the first thing I do is fire up the computer. My computer
1: doesn't turn it off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks everyone for tuning in this week's episode of Tech Snap and thank you for submitting your best of submissions. I wanna give you a heads up. We might be doing some feed management Over the holiday break. So, if you have any troubles with that, go back to the website, JupiterBroadcasting.com, and click on the latest episode of TechSnap or look on the RSS feed sidebar. We'll be shoring those up, doing some in house maintenance and cleaning things up and standardizing across the board. There's a possibility if you have a really old feed of TechSnap, you might have problems. If that happens to you, if you notice it gets stale, because we never miss an episode, so it's pretty safe to assume a RSS feed. Just go over to the site and be sure to grab the latest one. Also, I want to plug our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. You can go there and make this show better. Engage with the community. Submit questions or stories you'd like to see have us to see have us discussed. Or go to the uh, contact page, jupiterbroadcasting.com/contact. And last but not least, join us live. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com/calendar to find out when we're live. Wow, that's a heck of a lot of URLs, but it's worth it. We're worth it, and you're worth it. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.